everybody, and welcome to another edition of Entrepreneur Rx, where we help healthcare professionals own their future. Hey everybody, welcome back to Entrepreneurs RX. Today I'm really fortunate to have Dr. David Berger, who is a chief executive officer at University Hospital at Downstate and the main teaching affiliate of Downstate Health Sciences University. Dr. Berger is an expert in patient flow, operating room throughput, which I definitely want to talk about, quality and patient safety, his extensive experience in identifying cost-cutting healthcare technology and implementing the technology that's so effective in hospitals. David, welcome to the podcast. Hey, John, thanks a lot. I'm definitely going to send a copy of this to my mom. She'll love that introduction. Well, you have so you you have such a diverse background. I was like, okay, how do I how do I pare this down? Because one of the things I want to talk to you about is working with Michael DeBakey. He was like an early hero of mine, and you probably know, knew him well. Yes. Yeah, so I was privileged to be the operative care line executive at what became the Michael E. DeBakey VA Medical Center, which formerly was the Houston VA Medical Center, and the DeBakey VA is actually the largest. VA in the system in terms of the number of patients it treats. Uh, It's actually the most complex. And we had a very, very busy surgical service. Uh, When I first got there, Dr. DeBakey, who was 90 at the time when I arrived, was still the chair of the Dean's Committee at the VA, and he was still extremely active. And I had the opportunity to interact with Dr. DeBakey uh, ongoing until he uh, passed away. I think he was 99, just short of his 100th birthday. Yeah. He was just amazing, amazing individual and totally committed to patient care and totally committed to veterans care throughout. It was just amazing to watch him. You know, I read the book Hearts. It was about him and Denton Cooley when I was literally, I think, a preteen. And I wanted to be a heart surgeon, you know, my entire life until doing a rotation. So I always admired, and I I went down to Texas on a spring break and walked around Texas Heart, just trying to absorb it. So it's a very very cool experience, I'm sure. So I was fortunate to work with both of them. So when I became the chief operating officer at Baylor St. Luke's, we ran Texas Heart and had the opportunity to meet Dr. Cooley in his later years, but uh, he was an amazing individual as well. And it's it's really unusual to have two people of that stature in two institutions right next to each other. And they really fueled each other, the competition between the two of them. And I think the Texas Medical Center and the success of the Texas Medical Center has a lot to do with the fact that they were both there throughout their careers. It was just an amazing legacy. Now, so you're the perfect person to answer this. And I've always wondered this. Did they have a relationship as, as they got into their later years or were they still bitter rivals? So there was a bitter rivalry. And uh, for a while, they didn't speak to each other. But I think uh, when Debicki was about 95, they had a reconciliation. And both Debicki and Cooley have surgical societies in their honor. And Cooley first made DeBakey an honorary member of his society, and the DeBakey made Dr. Cooley an honorary member of his society. So there was a reconciliation towards the end of their lives, which was just amazing to watch. Oh, that's good. Yeah. You know, they were were mentor-protege to start. And then all of a sudden, you know, it it didn't work out so well. All right. So sorry I sidetracked a little bit, but I've always wondered that. (laughs) 
So, okay, so, so, so backing up, take people through your career, and then let's talk about kind of where, how you are, how you are, where you are. Yeah, so I started out my career, uh, I was actually going to be a pediatrician, and then I had some great experience on the surgical service when I was a, a medical student, and I decided to become a surgeon, and in fact, an academic surgeon. I did my general surgery in Brooklyn at the institution I now the CEO of and had the opportunity to go to MD Anderson in Houston to be to do my surgical oncology. And then I, my first faculty job was in Philly at what was MCP Hahnemann, then became Allegheny, and got, got recruited back to Houston to Baylor College of Medicine by someone I uh, was a resident with. And when I got came back to Houston, I was what was called the Operative Carolina Executive at the DeBakey VA. And whereas I thought I was going to be an academic surgeon, have a basic science lab, and then potentially be a chairman and a dean, my experience at the VA really changed that. And it changed my focus from really basic science research to health services and outcomes research and really on patient safety and quality. And then I got the administrative bug. I really enjoyed uh, leading the surgical service there and developed more and more of my leadership skills and really to hone and round out my administrative education, I went and got a master's in healthcare management at Harvard. And then based on the success at the DeBakey VA, I was asked to come over to the private side of Baylor first as the chief medical officer, then the chief clinical officer, and then the chief operating officer. And then after I had the opportunity to be chief operating officer and really had the full breadth of administrative experience in the hospitals, I got called to become the CEO back at my alma mater again by uh, the chair at Baylor, who we worked together as residents. And then he then became the dean at, at Downstate, and he was the one who helped recruit me here. So. The question is, how do I get through that winding path? And I think there's a couple of things to think about. I think one of the most important things that is a repetitive theme during my career is the issue of mentors. I've had some amazing mentors. So the first mentor was the person who convinced me to be an academic surgeon. Then I had another great mentor who convinced me to be a surgical oncologist. Then I had great mentors when I was at MD Anderson who helped me on my early career track. So it's been really about mentors, mentors, mentors along the way who've really taken an interest in my career and helped me achieve my goals. I think the second thing is the issue of opportunity. So while I thought I was going to go in one direction, there were different opportunities that came up throughout my career and just looking at the opportunity, see how it fit with what my strengths were and what my interests were and seizing those opportunities, again, led me on the path to where I currently am as the CEO. And then finally, the, the one of the three most important things is the issue of network. It's really important to build a network throughout your career. And it's not just to benefit yourself, because whenever I network with someone, I ask them how I can help them. But certainly, most of the opportunities I've been presented have been through my network. 
know, I got the job initially at Baylor and the, the debate EVA because of my network. I got the job to be the, the chief operating officer at Baylor St. Luke's because of my network. I got my CEO job because of my network. Networking is really critical to being able to be successful in your career and achieve what your professional goals are. How important was it for you to go back and get some advanced educations to get, get your master's? Yeah. So I don't think everyone who wants to be in healthcare administration needs a master's. You really have to be self-aware of what your strengths and your weaknesses are and how they fit into the position you're trying to apply for or the goal and the direction you're trying to go in. So I felt there were a couple of things in my training uh, where there were holes, because uh, basically I had medical training and didn't have a lot of administrative training. So in terms of financial accounting, cost accounting, really honing my negotiation skills, I thought those are things that be helpful to get an advanced degree in. And I don't regret, regret for a day spending the time to get that done. Yeah, it's it's funny. I've you know I've gone back a couple of times and it's I'm I'm literally always amazed at what I don't know. It's you know the old wise man knows he knows nothing and um boy there's a lot <laughs> there's a lot I learned that I had no idea about and have a lot left left to learn. Let me ask you a question. How did you one thing I had to learn is is an EM physician like I expect things are just you know I'm a, you're probably a Tolgawande fan given the fact you're both surgical oncologists but that's kind of where my brain works, but that's not where most people's brains works. How did you transition from, let's get this done, you're a surgeon, you expect with these results to being, I don't want to say softer, but more inclusive. Is that a good way to say it? Yeah, no, <laughs> that is a challenge. And you know, I grew up in the era of leadership was command and control, especially in surgery. Right. So you've hit the nail on the head with that transition. And it isn't easy. And I took my lumps for it because you do make mistakes. And one of the things that I think I'm pretty good at, I'm pretty self-aware. So I take constructive criticism very well. And I'm aware of my weaknesses and my strengths. So I realized that my listening was not a strength because of the fact as a surgeon that make a plan, make the diagnosis, take care of the problem. Uh, and that's not the way uh, leadership is currently. And that's not, not the way you manage an institution. So I read a lot. I, I took feedback and I changed the way I approach things. But still, I even if, if I'm in a meeting now with someone, I have to remind myself, okay, be patient. Don't jump in, listen, don't react. Uh, so it, it is a learned skill and you have to be aware of how you're coming across to other people. But you, you're absolutely 100% right. It's a very different uh, mindset. So you, you may have heard, Dr. Berger, this, you are no longer in the operating room. You've got to slow your pace. Or they always tell me, slow my roll. You got it. It's very, very true. And even now in the operating room, and if you mentioned, Gwandi, if you read his work, the operating room is a different place 
now than it was before. It was the surgeon was the captain of the ship. He didn't speak unless he was spoken to, especially as a nurse or a medical student. Now it's all about situational awareness, uh, making sure all the team is empowered. So it's a very different mindset and leadership style, even for surgeons in the operating room. Was it difficult for you to, because uh, I'm, I'm just assuming now you, you probably don't spend any time in the operating room anymore. Was that a hard challenge? Yeah, so I, I don't operate anymore, but I try to stay clinically busy in terms of I, I attend tumor boards. I do a lot of the participate in some of the peer review conferences, but it, it was a hard transition. It, it sort of was forced upon me, not because of time, but because of physical issues. I've had three operations on my neck and three operations on my lower back. Uh, I, I was a surgical oncologist and did a lot of big abdominal and pelvic surgery, and it just took a toll on my uh, musculoskeletal system. And that, that's not an uncommon no. factor. Uh, I think 30% of surgeons have had some musculoskeletal issues, especially spinal issues. Yeah, it's the same with fighter pilots, for example. Um, they have a ton of neck and back issues, and I would imagine oral surgeons and dentists do as well, just for leaning over somebody. So, yeah, you guys and you guys do it for seven hours at a time, so it's got to be very physically demanding and mentally demanding. And it's finally been recognized by the surgical societies, and there, there are several papers that have come out looking at surgeon ergonomics to try to address the issue because it's such a common problem. Yeah, it's got to be. What What are your thoughts? I, I mean, I've always been under the belief, and I think there's some data to support it, that hospitals and hospital systems run by physicians generally do better. I mean, to me, that's an intuitive, obvious answer, but I, I'm sure you've seen both sides. What What are your thoughts? So only a small fraction of hospitals in this country are actually run by physicians. I did write a... a a perspective piece that got published in JAMA Surgery, I think it's in 2019, on the issue of uh, physician administrators. And at the time, 14 of the top 20 hospitals in U.S. News and World Report were run by physicians. And the, the other industries where it, you get similar data is if you look at race car teams, it's teams that are run by either drivers or engineers much better than businessmen. If you look at uh, basketball teams and over the course of NBA championships, much many more championships have been won by people who were former players who are now coaches than coaches who have not been players in the past. So there is something to the issue of expertise and the ability to lead a team because of that expertise. But I think there are some um, some of the best CEOs I've worked with and worked for are not doctors, uh, and they were outstanding CEOs and led great institutions. So I, I think there's a little more to it than just whether or not you're a physician. There's the skills around being a physician. Yeah, I know. I agree. It's like you know, a aircraft carriers. The captains are always ex-pilots. They're not ex-ship commanders. So there's certainly something to be said for that. But I also think, like you said, it's not that no one else can do it, obviously, but it's we have a little bit of a leg up because we understand how healthcare should should be practiced. And we understand how physicians should act and work, which is and hard. Yeah. Yes. 
sorry to interrupt, but the best non-physician CEOs that I've uh, worked for have deference to physician leaders. So they fill that void in their training by deferring to other physicians and they really respect the physicians and their contribution to the delivery of care. Yeah, I've, I've been in some hospital systems where physicians were not only treated, but were told they were a simple cog in the machine right. and could be replaced easily. And that just makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up. That, that doesn't work. No, I totally agree. One of the things is you, one of the things you talk about, and it's on your LinkedIn profile, that you help physicians transition to kind of towards your path, doing more administrative leadership roles. How do you do that? Yeah, so it really depends on the person. And I, I feel since I had great mentors that I have to give back to others and help them on their journey. And really, when I coach someone, the main thing I do is I try to listen to them and understand what their goals are what they think their strengths and weaknesses are and help them fill in their strengths. The other thing I like to do as a mentor is help them build their network. Again, most of these jobs in administration are filled through networks. Yeah, there's all these recruiting firms that make a huge amount of money, but if you come down to it, usually the person being hired has some type of connection within the organization that's hiring them. So I help them build their portfolio. I help them identify their leadership challenges, their personal leadership challenges. But I think most importantly, I help them build their network and help identify opportunities for them. Do you think from, from where you've been in your position now, do you see more and more physicians becoming disenfranchised with the healthcare system and are looking to do other things? I, I, I get the sense, but it may just be because of the blinders that I have on? Well, I think what's happened as a result of the pandemic is there's a significant amount of physician burnout. You know, early on, physicians were celebrated and nurses and caregivers were celebrated as heroes, but that didn't last too long. You know, it's maybe the first three to six months, everyone was a healthcare hero. And I think that helped sustain morale during the initial real challenging time. That has totally dissipated. And then with the, a lot of the vaccine mandates uh, and how healthcare, some healthcare workers were treated, uh, I think the, the whole mindset of hero sort of disappeared. And as a result, because of the stresses of the system and the number of people who have left the system, there is a significant amount of burnout. And because of the burnout, people are looking for alternatives. And it's not just physicians, but nurses as well are looking to move away from direct care. The other thing that's really fueling this is society as a whole has become much more confrontational. Patients are questioning their healthcare providers and not in a what we would regard as a socially acceptable manner. Uh, so especially the people on the front line, the emergency room staff, as you know, and the hospitalists and people like that who have really direct patient care and direct interaction with family are in many times being victimized because of the, the conflict that has grown in society and the way we interact with each other is on much less friendly terms. And 
much more confrontational. So it's a, it's a stress. Yeah, I've definitely noticed that. You know, I stopped asking people if they've been vaccinated because I didn't want to know the answer because I would be frustrated often, and I'd say, well. I won't even go down the rabbit hole, but but yeah, there's there's much more antipathy, I think, for these frontline physicians that I've seen over a lot. And, you know, Phoenix had hit hard, but nothing like New York did. So you were obviously in the thick of it. How did you, during the thick of it, manage all your physicians? I mean, it's it had to be hell, frankly. So I wasn't here during the first wave in spring of uh, 2020, uh, this place was overwhelmed. There was, we had some challenges in our physical plant, but we were the only hospital designated COVID only. And there were patients everywhere. Uh, and it was very, very stressful. I know it was stressful, but frequent communication, people rolled up the sleeves and pitched in. And, and early on, the thought was you were even putting your own life and the family's life in danger. Totally. People still stepped up and, and did what it took. And even through the first wave and the fact that we're challenged in terms of our facilities, our more was just as any of the other hospitals in New York. So uh, they got through it, but it was a real challenge, but I wasn't here. Yeah, well, you still got the second wave, I'm sure, which was a little bit better because we're all used to it at that point. We all had COVID fatigue, but still managed through it. Let's switch subject here, if you don't mind. Um, digital health. You're an expert in digital health. Where Where's the world going to with digital health? So I think you have to, when you're looking at that question, look at other industries and how digital has transformed how you bank, how you make a hotel reservation how you make an airline reservation. So digital has transformed just about every other industry in the world and healthcare has lagged behind significantly. So I do think over the course of the next five to 10 years, we will see a market transformation in how healthcare is delivered. Just look at the pandemic and the rise of telehealth. We had talked about telehealth and we had actually started telehealth in 20. 12, 2014, uh, when I was in Houston, but the because of the pandemic, the use of telehealth really exploded. Totally. Yeah. The other thing that is becoming very, very important is the issue of remote monitoring. We can now monitor all kinds of the vital signs regardless of where you are, which is now leading to the movement of hospitals at home. So digital tools are going to totally transform how we deliver healthcare. It's going to be a bumpy road because there are so many different apps and solutions and companies trying to get into this space. But I think it will all sort out and we'll see a very, very different healthcare system uh, 10 years from now. No, I agree. I started a digital healthcare company in 2010 and literally used your exact same quote. We can do it in banking. Makes total sense. And we all trust it. Why can't we do it in healthcare? And so it was slow as hell for about four years and started to pick up. And then the pandemic hit. And as we all know, it just went, went through the roof. You know, as a surgical oncologist, where do you see the world going for personalized medicine 
as it relates to the genetic variants we all carry that may may make us more predisposed to different kind of cancers. I mean, BRCA is obviously the classic one, but there are I'm sure there are literally hundreds. So we're already seeing personalized medicine in uh, in cancer therapy right now. So most cancers uh, they will do genomic analysis and looking at the most frequent mutations in any cancer and t- tailor the chemotherapy specifically to the gen- genetic mutations that any tumor has. So we're already seeing that. And that's just going to continue to explode. I think we're going to have more and more personalized and individualized type of therapies uh, as it moves forward. But we're, we're there already. Right. Uh, but it's going to continue to grow. Do you think there'll ever, and this is a way out there question, do you think there'll ever be a day when we're using gene therapy to, prior to diagnosis, say, look, you've got a risk of X. We're going to clip out that gene using CRISPR-Cas9 technology, and so you don't have X anymore. Yeah. So you, I was when you started the question, I was going to say cite CRISPR technology, and that finding has revolutionized our ability to edit the genome. And there's a lot of issues around the ethics of what we should do in terms of our ability to to edit the genome. But certainly, if you have someone who has Leaf-Raumani syndrome, which is inherited P53 mutation, and you can correct that with a CRISPR uh, mutation by cutting out the mutant P53, I think that's going to happen. Yeah, why not? And and clearly, we're already there with, there are trials going on now with sickle cell disease to treat sickle cell with CRISPR and incredible success. But I think the finding around CRISPR is going to totally revolutionize how we do gene therapy. Yeah, the only question I have, I agree with you, is that there's obviously the I mean, ethical component to, you know, I want to be 6'4", not 5'4". You know, let's fix that. The, obviously, that's going to be a stretch. But I, but I worry about if we can get past the ethics, which we'll be able to get past, but then comes how is it going to be, who's going to pay for it? I think that's going to be the next big challenge, even as prices come down. Well, in... In China, there was a scientist who used CRISPR. Yep. In H, and he's in, ended up in, in prison. Yeah. He ended up totally ostracized by the the entire scientific community, and was ended up in prison in China. Yeah, but he was celebrated when he went back home first. Initially, he was, but once the scientists figured out what he actually did. Yeah. Uh, a huge amount of pressure and he was totally ostracized. Yeah. I, I and we don't have to I actually feel bad for him. He was he was way over his skis. However, the people that he did it was basically to prevent children from getting HIV with from their HIV parents. So his intent was good, just out over his skis. It sounds like you read the Isaacson book. I did. Yeah. How 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 could you tell? How important is entrepreneurism? for physicians these days to prevent burnout? Because that's what I, I mean, that's how I use it. I, you know, I'm still practicing, but it's been, you know, three decades plus. But for me, entrepreneurism was always a crutch against burnout. What have you seen? Yeah, so I, that's a good question. I haven't thought about it in the, in the context of burnout. I think encouraging physician entrepreneurism, regardless of what it is. So even if you're fixing a minor thing in the electronic medical record, to be able to take care of patients better. I, I would lump that in terms of right. entrepreneurism. So I, I would think encouraging those kind of things and presenting physicians those, those opportunities potentially 
can give them personal satisfaction at their job and may uh, decrease the issue of burnout. But I, I haven't, I can't speak to it directly in terms of, yeah, if we do that, it will decrease burnout. But I think anything, so we are engaged with the Greater New York Hospital Association in a, a program to reduce burnout, especially in our hospitalists and our emergency department. And, and one of the things that has been made clear, burnout has a lot, lot to do with the work environment. So making the work environment better and making it easier for the docs to do what they were trained to do probably has a significant impact on reducing burnout. So it's not that docs aren't resilient all of a sudden. It's that the work environment has become so difficult that they can't function within that work environment. Yeah, and I think it's true, but as a physician CEO, I mean, I would feel much more comfortable going to you and saying, hey, David, this isn't working down here. You know, my my colleagues and I are really struggling here to a non-physician who just, although they might intellectualize it, they just don't get it because there is some things that you just, like you described, you just have to be in the game to really understand what it means. Yeah, I, I'm not arguing with you about the point of, having physician leadership, I think it's important. Obviously, I wouldn't have done this if I didn't think being a physician leader was an advantage. Uh, I think I bring a lot to the table because I've been a frontline physician. I've taken care of surgical patients. I've been in the operating room. I think that's an inherent advantage I have over a non-physician. I don't disagree with that. Uh, And certainly some of the things you pointed out emphasize why it is important to have physician leaders running healthcare organization. You know, you mentioned resilience a little bit ago. And one of the things I always talk about with physicians is, you know, I think we have all the tools, we physicians have all tools to be entrepreneurial because one of the things that's involved is resilience. And I think probably all generations say this. I mean, Michael DeBakey probably said it. Ah, these new guys are not as resilient as, as, as our group was. But I'm starting to sense that now, again, as I'm interviewing some of the medical students, I, I worry about their resilience. What what have you seen as this new crowd coming out? You know, has the eighty hour the eight hour work week been too easy for them? I think it's hard to generalize across right. a generation. So, for full disclosure, I have a daughter who's a chief resident in surgery, <laughs> and you know, she says to me, and she works eighty hours, and she works sometimes more, and she won't complain. She's not. The, the type to complain she will get the job done but she says to my wife all the time she goes you know i i have no idea how dad did it right and there were weeks i worked 120 hours uh, so she and she and my wife said well she he had a spouse he had someone to help and she goes no 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 i understand those things i'm not talking about those things how do you stay at work and do good work and take care of patients and work in 120 hours a week. So I think she appreciates it. I don't think there's an inherent lack of resilience in this group. I think social expectations have changed. The expectations around work-life balance have changed. But I don't think it's inherent that this generation is just lazy. Yeah, I think you actually probably hit it on the head. You know, I was I was listening to a podcast by Peter Tia, and he talked about we were talking it was about sleep, and I'm a huge sleep proponent, and I wasn't for two plus decades. 
And he said, you know, when, I, when he was a resident, he, he said, we would often work 120-hour weeks. And he was told early, he goes, look, there's 168 hours in a week. So what you do with that other 48 hours in seven days matters. And so if you want to waste it on sleep, go for it. Um, so he was the I'll sleep when I'm dead, you know, theory of what I always used to tell people, clearly not the right way to be. But I think you're right. I think it's probably become much more humane and it and it really needed to be. 80 hours is still a hell of a long week. 80 hours is twice what anyone else works. It's still yeah. a huge burden. And especially if you're single and you're working 80 hours, when do you go to the doctor? When do you clean your apartment? When do you get your laundry done? It just 80 hours is a long time it is a long time thank god it's thank god we were young when we did and you know general surgery residency it was a lot more difficult than emergency medicine residency so i i have nowhere to complain well david this has been excellent how can people get a hold of you because i think they're you're gonna have some people to reach out and say look you know i, I need a mentor because you're you're where i want to be yeah so I, i'm pretty active on linkedin so it's it's just David Berger, and uh, it's actually uh, it's David H. Berger on LinkedIn, and also uh, my e my personal email. I'm happy to give that out. Is D H Berger one zero zero two at Gmail. Perfect. So that's how. To, and I, I want to finish with one thing since we talked about burnout and resilience. September seventeenth is Physician Suicide Awareness Day. This has become a huge problem in the field uh, and certainly is being recognized more. The pandemic has increased the number of physicians that have taken their lives. And, and we really need to recognize the signs in our colleagues of people who are suffering from depression and potentially are contemplating suicide and take action and not ignore it. So I just want to put that plug in. I'm so glad you brought that up because I've been reading a lot on this. There was a as I recall, he was an orthopedic surgeon on the East Coast. They called him like Dr. Smiley. He was this great-looking late 40s, early 50s orthopedic surgeon who took his own life, and it crushed everybody. And said, they said, no one saw it coming. So since you brought it up, what should we be looking for? Because apparently everybody missed it in this great physician. Yeah, so any change in behavior. So most of the time, physicians have a set routine, a set way of uh, – of acting and interacting, any change in behavior should be recognized. Uh, potentially, if you see examples of substance abuse, people who are dealing with difficulties in terms of their marriage, any evidence of depression, need to call it out and, and take, try to take action. One of the challenges, we'll go off script here a little bit, but one of the challenges I think people have is the second that gets reported or the second you self-report, you seem like you're all of a sudden this uh, I was, it was described as a snowball's rolling and you have no control what it's going to run over and you know i've had colleagues say yeah i'm struggling but i don't want to see a psychiatrist because it's because it's reportable i don't want to go to my medical board because it's reportable and i'll have this quote black mark and so i think we don't take care of our each other or ourselves because we're all afraid that that you know this will stick with us like catholic school it's like the permanent you know it's on your permanent record i heard that my you know eight years there yeah i think that's changed a lot oh good you know, so i've dealt with uh, as a, a cmo i've dealt with physicians having substance abuse issues and it's not reported 
if the physician takes action themselves. If we recognize it and take action, first go to the thing to do is go to the physician and ask the physician to voluntarily take action on their own. At that point, it's not reportable. If they right. refuse to take action and they continually are problematic and just display disruptive behavior, then it's reportable. But it is not reportable if the physician steps forward and takes action on their own. Good. I've just I've seen um, hospital staff applications where you where they'll ask you if you've had any substance abuse, behavioral, mental health issues. And it's a, you know, yes, no checkbox. If yes, you know, describe here. And I'd always be in, you know, knock on wood, although the day is young, I've yet to experience that. But I'd always be afraid if I had to write yes and then write down, well, you know, I suffer from depression for six months. I was on, I was on an anxiolytic and an antidepressant medication. However, now I'm better. So sitting on multiple credentialing and privileging committees, I'll tell you, if you say no, and the, they find out you'll either be kicked off the medical staff or denied right. privilege. Right. If you say yes, and you have a reasonable explanation, and there's time between when the event happened and when you were applying for, for privileges, and you can supply documentation from your physician saying this has been resolved, you're now on this medication, you will still get your credentials and your privileges. Great. Uh, that's that's good to hear. I've always been had this gut instinct. I've done a little work with the medical board that folks would are, are afraid to disclose things that may jeopardize their career later on, as yeah, they should lie, be. If you lie on your application, yep, you're sunk. Yep, totally agree. Well, David, thank you so much. We'll put your contact information in the show notes. This has been. Uh, I know we end we ended on kind of a very appropriate but uh, somber note, but uh, thank you very much for this. This has been great. Yeah, my pleasure, John. Thanks for listening to another great edition of Entrepreneur RX. To find out how to start a business and help secure your future, go to johnshufeltmd.com. Thanks for listening.